0: The Huntley Baptist Church Podcast We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today Please feel free to contact us at extra.co.nz Or visit us at huntleybaptist.com Morning church Speaking of hemmed in, I'm feeling a little bit hemmed in here One second I might just do this Cool. morning. I was going to ask if anyone remembered what psalm we did last week, but I'd be a little bit shocked if you didn't at this point. I think Juliet's mentioned it, has mentioned it, has mentioned it, Psalm 139. Yes, so last week we did part one, I called it, which was verses 1 to 12. Yes, I oh, know, it's all right, we've got a podcast for that very reason. Thank you, Daniel and I for doing that, and today we're going to look at uh, 13 to 24. So when I look at Psalm 139, the second part, it looks like there's, there's two distinct sections. So verses 13 to 18 in the first section and verses 19 to 24 in the second section. So naturally I'm going to start off with the first section, which is verses 13 to 18. I'm going to read those through. So. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 18. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, marvellous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. So I think we could all agree that's a pretty beautiful part of Scripture. A series of verses that celebrate God and recognise him for the amazing creativity and complexity that is on display in every one of us. It also talks about the fact that our days are specially made for us, laid out in front of us, far before a single day has even passed. So when I read these verses, I think of two words, or I thought of two words. The human life is intentional and purposeful. Last week, talked about King David, who is the most likely candidate for the writer of this psalm. And it was most likely written after he had just become king in Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about how David had waited this whole time, this, at least 17 years, he had waited to become king. And now he's become king. So we're talking around the time of like 1 Chronicles chapter 13, 2 Samuel chapter 5, that kind of that kind of timeline. So the question I started asking myself was what would cause David to write something like this? Was it like a spur of the moment thing or was something else in play? So if, if we hunt around 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel, we find that right after David was crowned king, uh, the whole nation of Israel gathered together, and they marched off to fight against this city. It's named Jebus. And it's also got another name. Does anyone want to hazard a guess at what that name might be? No. Jerusalem is the other name. Radius, eyes. So I was looking at you, Jeremy, hoping that you're like my backstop to know <laughs> to know stuff like that. <laughs> Jerusalem. Jerusalem is also known as Jebus in the Bible. And it was the home to the Jebusites. So when Israel first crossed over into Promised Land, they actually they ran into the Jebusites. The Jebusites were already there. That's where they lived. They were, they were part of the Canaanites. So these Jebusites, they descended down from, from Noah's. And Noah's son had a son called Ham, and he had a son called Canaan, and that's where the Jebusites came from. So these Jebusites are spoken of quite a bit in the Bible, and it is not a good report. So in Deuteronomy 20 verse 17 and 18, the Israelites are told by God to utterly destroy the Jebusites when they enter the Promised Land of Canaan. And the reason was, so that they teach you not to do after their abominations which they have done unto their gods. So. When something's called an abomination in the Bible, it's like a serious thing. It meant that whatever was going on was, was like morally disgusting or filthy, something that's completely idolatrous. So what are these abominations that these Jebusites are doing, these heinous things that God's disgusted by? Well, the people of, of Canaan, and I said includes the Jebusites, they had this God, they had heaps of gods, but they had this, this one kind of main God, and his name was Baal. And he had heaps of names, but Baal's like the most common one for him. And he's, he's thought to be like this fertility god. He's in charge of, of the weather, apparently, and of the sun. And so people used to think, well, if he's in charge of those two things, then he's in charge of the crops. He's in charge of all the farming. And his name was like, it meant like Lord. And he was also called King of the gods. Now, if you worshipped Baal... You, yeah, it wasn't for the faint-hearted. So in Jeremiah chapter 32, there's heaps of places that describe worship, but that's one of the main places, and it describes what followers of Baal would get up to. So I'll try and... there are children here, aren't there? On top of being incredibly sexually promiscuous, so they would carry out like ritual prostitution, so prostitution is part of worship... As well as doing that, they would, they would sacrifice their children, so by, they, would, they would burn them alive in fire. The people thought by doing this, Baal would bless them financially. So essentially if you worshipped Baal, you worshipped sex and money. Yikes, I know right? And this was the people that David came up against. So when he marched the armies of Israel against Jerusalem, or Jebus, this is the kind of people they were marching against. And this makes me wonder if all this didn't have a kind of profound effect on David. So this is the world that David lives in. And I don't think it's unrealistic to assume that he knew that these kind of things were going on in these other nations. Baal worship had been happening for a long time. And uh, now we had the chance to see it up close and personal even. There are some reports that apparently the big statue, the big idol that they used to do these sacrifices on was actually outside, right outside Jerusalem. If this is the case, to me it, it paints this powerful contrast and comparison within Psalm 139 itself. So we've got on one hand, Jebusites, their gods, all kind of sexual immorality, debauchery, including sacrificing their own children. So all for selfish purposes, wealth and an easy life. I mean, if you're wanting to sacrifice your child for wealth, then you're, you're like sold out for it. There's nothing you wouldn't do. T- to me, it just makes life seem so cheap <laughs> and expendable. So that's one side. And then you've got David writing in Psalm 39, And he's saying that we're actually, that's not the case, we're actually fearfully and wonderfully made. That even as unborn children, we're precious to God, and that he watches over us in the womb. That we're immensely valued by him, specially created by him. Not mistakes, God doesn't make mistakes, that God's actually determined All of our days. He's planned them out for us. It's not up to someone else to decide that we're just going to get chucked in a fire so that the family can have some gains, have a better crop season. That God actually has a purpose for each and every one of us. So when I read that, I think you couldn't get much different in comparison. But let's take it a step further. All the Jebusites did was to get Baal's attention. So to try and purchase his favor, they thought if we do all this you know, sexual worship stuff, Baal's going to send us rain and sun. If we sacrifice our, our firstborn children, he's going to bless us with prosperity and wealth. Now, do we remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? It's in 1 Kings 18, and it's, um, it's essentially like a, a, a bit of a rumble, really. It's, it's a showdown. And the stage is set between the prophets of Baal, that's 450 of them, and Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, the one prophet. So all of Israel is gathered around Mount Carmel to watch this unfold. And the terms are simple. The prophets of Baal, they're going to build an altar, they're going to pray to Baal. Elijah's going to build an altar and he's going to pray to the Israelite God. And whatever one sends down fire, burns up the sacrifice, that's the true God. So the 400 prophets of Baal, they prepare their altar, and the Bible says, And they took the bullock, and they dressed it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered, and they leaped upon the altar that was made. So no response. So desperate, they upped the ante says then, and they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, which was like a little spear, till the, gut blo- uh, till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. So these guys are yelling, screaming, crying to Baal all day long. They're even cutting themselves, shedding their own blood to get his attention, but nothing. The Bible says, nor any that regarded, meaning no one was considering them, no one was thinking about them. Set that side. compare that with the words found in Psalm 139. How precious also are they thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. To me, I'm thinking, wow, that's a powerful contrast for David to say. It's like him saying, I don't need to yell and scream and cut myself and sacrifice my children to get the attention of my God. My God is always thinking of me. I'm always on his mind. So, back to the showdown. (laughs) Elijah repairs the altar, he lays the sacrifice upon it, and has the whole thing saturated in water three times. Then he prays the following, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. The very next verse, Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up or licked up the water that was in the trench and when the people saw it they fell on their faces and they said the lord he is the god the lord he is the god now that to me as a god who is present and in control and paying attention surely no one could have left that day any doubt about who the true lord of lords and king of kings is and it certainly wasn't Baal they may have called him lord but he wasn't lord they may have called him king of gods he was not king of gods the sad fact is though that even after such a powerful display there were still Israelites that continued to worship Baal now some of you may be thinking and I assume this because I thought it I said, I thought, yeah, that's all well and good. But there are times where I felt like God isn't really listening to me. Like the times where I'm like, where's my fire from heaven? And oftentimes I'm I'm guilty of thinking that maybe God isn't actually paying attention to me. (laughs) That he's probably off doing something more important. Maybe he's in the Ukraine or in Cambodia or with starving children in Africa or in Bangladesh. But The words I read in Psalm 139 seem to fly in the face of that thinking. I don't think it's an outrageous statement to say that a good number of Christians at time can struggle to trust in God's goodness or in his faithfulness. And I don't think that actually lies with the the fact that we don't hear from him (laughs) or that we struggle to discern the whole God saying yes, God saying no, God saying wait thing. I think it actually lies with our incredibly short memories. We seem to constantly forget God's goodness. We constantly forget the healings, we constantly forget the provisions, the protection, all the answered prayers. I was challenged once, this was about three years ago, by a friend, he's actually a cousin, but he's a good, a good friend as well. He said, I challenge you to write down a thousand things that you are thankful to God for. It took me six months. <laughs> Six months. I'd been a QS, obviously, with numbers. I sat down and I thought, well, how many things realistically is that a day? Um, and it was like seven or eight things a day. So I got a journal and I thought, right, at the end of each day, I'm going to write down whatever, seven or eight things of what to be thankful for of what God's given me. And I thought it was giving be an absolute mission and that I'd be constantly repeating myself. It'd just be the same things over and over again. But to be honest, it wasn't actually that hard. Mm-hmm because when I, when I review my days at the end of the day and consider what God had done for me, I begin to re- realize that he was constantly answering prayer. <laughs> he was constantly intervening, he was constantly protecting me, he was constantly caring about every little detail. It was me that wasn't paying attention. So I say again, I believe it's a memory thing. Just like the Israelites did time and time again, we forget what God has done. And that can lead to doubt. And the devil loves a bit of doubt. He can work with a bit of doubt. So in summary of this first section, these verses 13 to 18, I don't believe it's unrealistic to think that David could have been writing Psalm 139 in direct reaction to what was happening around him. He was part of a world that included some pretty disturbing things, um, some horrible things. They reckon that he just conquered this city that had all these nasty things on display. This was one of the main cities of the Jebusites. But what we read in Psalm 39 goes totally against what those cities stood for, what those other nations stood for. Psalm 39's about God's sovereignty. Baal's not lord. Jehovah's lord the fact that he's always in control, and the bit we just won through, or ran through that, that we're being wonderfully made with a purpose. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the second part of the second half of Psalm 139, verses 19 to 24, seems to like change tact a little bit. We, we see this righteous anger brewing up in David, and he says this, Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God, Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any wicked way, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So. Depart from me is the phrase that initially stands out. It seems to suggest nearness of these enemies, like a close proximity, like they're actually among him. He says, do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? See, the history of Jerusalem is actually a fascinating one. It's probably top of my list of places I want to travel It's moved up there slowly, (laughs) and now it's at the top. There are people in this church that have been there. I strongly suggest that you have a chat with them. Mr. Cope, you're one of them. Amazing place. I would, yeah, I would love to go. Maybe one day, Lord willing. It's one of the oldest cities in the world. It's central in Bible history. It's central in Bible prophecy. But did you know that this wasn't the first time that the Israelites had come up against Jerusalem? So if we go back, Judges chapter 1, Israelites are first entering the promised land, and they actually attack the city of Jerusalem. It's the tribe of Benjamin that goes up and fights against it. Judges one twenty one. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited inhabited Jerusalem. (laughs) Wrong emphasis. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin until this day. So this is, this is 400 years before David marches up against Jerusalem. So the city of Jerusalem was actually once Israel's. But the Jebusites slowly took back control of it until it became a Jebusite stronghold once again. Why? Because the Israelites didn't heed God's warning about separating themselves from the surrounding nations. To not get involved with their customs or their gods, But surprise, surprise, Israel didn't listen, or they forgot. They intermingled, and soon, before you know it, they're acting like everyone else. So what does that mean for us today? Should we be shunning everybody else? Should we be going bush, living in Christian-only communities? No. (laughs) I don't think so, and I think there are many Bible verses to back that up. But in the context of Psalm 139, I think it comes down to who our enemies are. In David's time, yes, they were other nations. They were other people. God was setting up the stage for the kingdom of Israel to be established, and they actually needed to be set apart. So that other nations would recognize that Israel was special and that their God was the only true God. It was actually a form of evangelism. (laughs) But according to Romans 1.16, the gospel has now gone out to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, Grecian, Gentile, in other words, everybody else. So, our enemies are no longer other nations. They're no longer other people. And that can be a little bit of a, a hard process. I'm talking to myself here. That can be a bit of a hard process to sink in because I think it's easy to say, they're the problem, or he's the problem, or she's the problem. I wasn't pointing at you, Jocelyn, sorry. <laughs> so if we don't have enemies amongst other people, then who are our enemies? Ephesians six twelve, well-known verse, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Listed right there, to me, as who our enemies are. Our Muslim neighbour is not our enemy, or the famous atheist on TV, or the government. Our enemies are spiritual. And those are the battles that we should be fighting. That's where our attention should be. I think the devil has done great work in distracting us as to who we should be fighting against. What a you know we're fighting against each other. Sometimes we're fighting against ourselves. No one can beat me up like me. That's for sure. (laughs) What a great victory for him. But only if we let him. And I'll admit, it feels like a big fight. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, the world's against us. And in a way, it kind of is. But I want to cover one other thing before we close. These Jebusites, they sat up in Jerusalem, and they actually mocked David and the army of Israel. They said, in essence, to Samuel 5, they said, This city is so strong defensively that blind and lame soldiers could guard it, and it would be absolutely fine. How is that for pride and arrogance? <laughs> but David and his men find a way into the city. It's through a series of natural waterways, water springs and tunnels. that come up through them and they launch a surprise attack on the Jebusites. And ultimately they conquer Jerusalem for good. Now I may be going too far out on a limb here. Um, but water is closely associated with the Holy Spirit especially springs of water. Multiple times in John, Revelation, heaps. So now when I think, how do you conquer an enemy stronghold, being in mind that these enemy strongholds are spiritual, I can't help but but think, follow the path that's carved out by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And today some of the devil's strongholds might seem a bit like Jerusalem. It seemed back in the day impending, overpowering, impossible to penetrate. We're talking strongholds like depression, suicide, violence. But for my reading of the Bible, (laughs) my limited reading of the Bible, God doesn't need a lot of people. He just needs committed ones. So Elijah stood up to the 400 prophets of Baal and the current king of Israel, and God gave him the victory. Those prophets didn't last long, by the way. He slayed all of them. God gave him the victory, and he can do the same for us. I believe that. In a few days' time, I learned a new word the other, the other day from Luca. Um, apparently, the, the day after tomorrow is called yonder day. So if you want to speak to someone and say, oh, do you want to meet yonder day? It means the day after tomorrow. I kind of like that. So... <laughs> <laughs> So yonder day, Monday, yeah, yonder day, 7.30pm here, as already been said by Juliet, we're going to have a night of prayer. We're going to have some special guests there, dear, dear friends of mine who love this kind of thing, they love this church, and they love this community, they love this nation, and they love seeing salvation, so they're going to come here. And um, I think it would be a sad thing if we weren't well represented. These people are coming into, their, into a church that's not their own, and they sincerely want to bless it and bless this community. So I, I, I couldn't strongly enough encourage you to come um, because in, in preparation of this, I'm like, wow, this is where the battles are won. Um, I believe this is where our focus should be. Um, you don't have to be confident about praying aloud. Um, you can come and pray in the corner if you want, silently. You can just you know, join in and throw an amen in now, every now and then. God hears the prayers of our heart. It's about coming together in unity, being intentional, and praying in faith. You know, We could see miracles after just this one night. It might take a hundred nights, but we, we must be willing to fight. And, and fight in the way that scripture calls us to. So, as highlighted by Anna, David ends Psalm 139 which with a, a series of verses that has actually been called a dangerous prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I believe David knew the risk of being too closely associated with the things of the world. That when we compromise, that we let, when we let things slip in, they can eventually overtake us. Just like the Jebusites took back Jerusalem. It might have taken them 400 years, but they took it back. And David, I believe, was desperate for God to guide him in the things that lead to everlasting life, not to death. Anything related to Baal and, and the things of the other world leads to death. David was relentless. In the beginning of Psalm 139, he says that the Lord has searched me and known me. And yet, at the end, he's asking to be searched again. As in like, oh God, please, if there's anything in me that's wicked, that's not of you, please help me abandon it and follow your ways. And in closing, I'm saying, are we brave enough to pray such a prayer today? Heartfelt. So, let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the contrast of who the world is and who you are, that you're nothing like that, Lord, that that your ways don't lead to death but to life. And, Lord, we ask that we would be brave people. We may not be many in number, but may we be bold in heart, Lord God, filled with your spirit, filled with faith, Lord God, in who you are and your goodness and what you can do so we ask, O oh Lord, that you'd search us, that you'd try our hearts, know them, that you'd know our thoughts, that you'd see if there's any wicked way in us, Lord God, and you'd lead us in the way everlasting. We ask this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at Huntley Church or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.